0: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor at large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's only doing a podcast because I believe it is making the world a better place, but in my spare time I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Anand Girdardas, the former foreign correspondent and columnist for the New York Times, who has also written for The Atlantic, New Republic, and The New Yorker. He's also the author of several books, and his most recent is called Winners Take All. The elite charade of changing the world. I love that title. Anand, welcome to, Recode decode.
2: I'm so excited to be here.
1: So. T- to me, I want I talk about your book because you were just joking that I said you had a lot of fans you said as if as long as you're not a billionaire essentially as you're not, they don't like you. But let's talk a little bit about your background first and how you got to this because this is a topic that I think is really important. The idea, and it's great, Jeff Bezos just gave the $2 billion to homeless, things like that, what they're doing in the world, what these very elite and wealthy people are doing. But let's talk a little bit of how you got to this topic. So give me your like five second resume, not five seconds, but how did you get to be interested in this topic?
2: We always wanted to be a writer mm-hmm. um, and, you know, from high school onward and became a journalist um, when I was 22 for the New York Times uh, in India. Mm-hmm. I had actually grown up in the U.S. in Ohio and Maryland. Um, my parents were Indian immigrants. And I got some advice um, from Jill Abramson, who was a mentor of mine, when I did a little internship with the New York Times. She was the editor in, of the New
1: York Times, yeah. She
2: was not at oh, the time. Oh, she was yeah. She was like an, an editor in Washington. Mm-hmm. And she gave me an internship when I was in high school. And after college, she kind of gave me a piece of advice about don't just hang out outside the building trying to get in. Mm -hmm. Go out into the world, see something, Mm -hmm. have have experiences that that, that people don't know about. And so you have something to write about. Mm -hmm. And so I actually kind of reversed my parents' immigrant journey after college and moved to India where I'd never lived. Mm -hmm. And worked for McKinsey, which will come up again in the story for a year because it's the only – Entity in the world that will take a European history major mm-hmm. from the University of Michigan and send, smart. send them here. to send them yeah. to India to go yeah. advise a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. company, um, which <laughs> I which did you are
1: uniquely while pretending qualified. pretending
2: to know that I knew anything about no. India or yeah, pharma don't. or yeah, uh, but a lot of other people are pretending too, so it's mm-hmm. fine. And happily got out of that within a year and became a journalist for the Times and wrote about this transformation of modern India for four or five years, and at the end of that. Wrote a book and realized the book writing was really what I wanted to do. So, mm-hmm. so the winners take all is the third of my books now, mm-hmm. and it originated um, after I come first back. Two? The first two. So the, so so the first one. one was called India Calling, mm-hmm. an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking, and it was all about. And it's interesting, given where we're going to go in this conversation, it was all about the transformation of modern India, but told through five families mm-hmm. living through it. Regular families. And one, the richest man in India was one of them, and then the rest were, you know, kind of regular people. And that story was really about uh, one of the ancient, one of the most ancient and traditional societies on Earth, mm-hmm. very rapidly being upended by the opening of market forces, the globalization, the, the world kind of pouring into India in a very fast period of time, and. It was a very celebratory book, in a way, about what all of that did to what was, for many Indians, a very oppressive social structure. Mm-hmm. All these girls and women who were degraded by their families and told that they could never do anything, suddenly, you know, a, a job comes into town offering five times money than the father ever made, and the father says, okay, maybe I changed my mind, maybe women should work. <laughs> and you had, you know, these small town. I wrote about a lot of people in small towns who are very interesting to me, who you know, were the nth generation of people told by the caste system in India to, you know, you're a bricklayer, your dad was a bricklayer, your grandfather was a bricklayer. You will be a bricklayer. And you had these kids. One guy said to me, you know, he said, you know, do you realize TV is the best education? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I was raised to think the opposite. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, but where, where I come from, everything on TV is the best in the world, if you see someone catching an anaconda, this is the actual mm-hmm. example he gave me. If you see someone catching an anaconda on TV, they're the best person in the world at catching an anaconda. Mm-hmm. And he said, when you're from a little village in India, mm-hmm. and you see the best person in the world at everything, doing everything, it just raises your sure. your sights. Mm-hmm. And you and he said, I you know, and he said, I I knew you I had to live. get out of this town. I had to you know. So I I told the stories of people, really breaking the fundamental idea of Indian culture in many ways, which is that you kind of preserve the past, and each generation kind of replicates and continues heritage. And instead, all these people were kind of self-inventing, were right. becoming their own right. people. It was this like right. revolution of millions of little Gatsbys, right, right. Um, with all of the promise and all of the you know, potential darkness that that entails. And then in 2009, I came back to this country, Attempted to go to grad school, and that was not a very good match. I dropped out of that. Um, I'm one of those dropouts that did not become a billionaire, unfortunately, but um, I dropped out nonetheless. And I started to be very interested in this kind of great bifurcation of America. I had told this very optimistic story about India Mm -hmm. and about, in some ways, something like the American dream coming Mm -hmm. to India. And then I came back in 2009, and it seemed like the American dream had had deserted America. It had. Um,
1: That's exactly when it did, right then.
2: And it was very weird, particularly with that. My my family left India precisely because this was a place you could come to dream and and realize your hopes, and the place they came from wasn't. And this weird reversal just really right. haunted me and kind of became India's still on a tear. It it is. And with lots of problems. So and a,
1: France, but go ahead, we won't get into that.
2: Well, we, a lot of places are on a yeah, tear, you know, yeah. particularly, particularly when we're not. I mean,
1: creative and innovatively. Right.
2: And, by the way, I grew up in France also for a few years in there when I was a kid. And so I, I, I was looking to tell the story of this great mm-hmm. bifurcation, because what I felt very strongly was, and, and, and all the stories you do are evidence of this, American decline is not a, is not a generalized decline. Right. Britain has had a generalized decline. Mm-hmm. Right? Spain has had a generalized decline. The best parts of America, the best institutions, areas, <laughs> people, are as good as they've ever been. The parts of this country that are high functioning are as high functioning as they've ever been. And that's a pretty large it is. part of this country. The problem is the rest of the country has basically descended into being a second world country instead of a first world yeah, country. Yeah, I talk
1: about this all the time. And at it's at the bottom.
2: And it's no. maddening, and it's and it's and that's what's so that's what's really different, I think. And so I became very interested in ways of telling that story. And in two thousand eleven, I was you know, I still had a New York Times column, and I was looking for a column idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I know you know the feeling. And I think I was like on the day where I needed one, and you get a little desperate. And I was on my iPad reading through the New York Times, and I saw. The, like the one of the last news briefs, you know, when you get to the national briefings, I mean, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for column <laughs> ideas. Yeah, uh, I got there and I see this story that says, in Texas last night, they executed a man who, you know, shot some people. So far, so Texas. Then the next part of the brief was, in his final days, one of his victims, Race buyan had been fighting to save his life. I thought that's a little unusual. So I, had a couple more clicks. Uh, that was nine a.m. By eleven a.m., I knew that was my next project, um, and it became my next book, The True American: Murder and Mercy in Texas, mm-hmm. and it's all about this hate crime in Texas, where a white supremacist. Um, this is you know this happened in two thousand one, the month or so after nine eleven. But what's so remarkable is this white supremacist whose ideas, because he left journals and he left all kinds of writings, if you look at his ideas, it is Trumpism distilled. It is this the same grievances, the same kind of working agreed. class white guy, yeah, status agreed. anxiety inverted yeah. onto others. So he goes around and he shoots three gas, brown gas station workers over a month after mm-hmm. 9-11. Because they're kind of far apart, people don't. Put it together. What was going on until it's all over? Two of them die—an Indian and a Pakistani. The third victim is a Bangladeshi former air force officer in his country who's come to this country to pursue a better life, even though he was like at a very high stature in his country, working in this mini mart to try to get to learn IT in college and get get in on the tech boom. And he is blinded in one eye. Thirty nine pellets enter his head, two almost enter his brain, but stop short. Um, he thinks he's dying, but he doesn't die, and, and essentially this victim, Rais Bouyan, Muslim immigrant to this country in the feverish days after 9-11, after regaining his life, rebuilds his life in the most painful, arduous way, layer by layer, job by job, gets a telemarketing job, gets an olive garden job, finds a guy who teaches him IT, eventually ends up making it, makes six figures in IT. Ten years after this shooting, well, several years after the shooting, he starts to realize as he's recovered that when he was dying or thought he was dying, he had looked up to the sky and said to you know his God, uh, if you save me, I'll dedicate the rest of my life to serving others, and that he hadn't done that. He'd right. taken care of himself for several years, as he understandably had to. But now he was whole, and he was out of medical debt, and he was— Ready to do that. And so he thought long and hard about how do you do that. And he decided the thing he wanted to do was forgive in front of all the world the guy who shot this him. This is
1: like Re- Laura Blumenfeld wrote a book called Revenge about the guy who shot her father in Israel. It's another, it's similar. You should read it. That's great.
2: So he, he forgave he, this guy. Yeah. And then he sued the state of Texas and the governor of Texas at the time, Rick Perry, sued them to. Prevent them from executing this guy yeah. in the name of Islam and Sharia law, which he said requires mercy. Right. And so that book was the whole story of that case and and this kind of courtroom drama at the end of this guy trying to save the life of the guy who shot him in the face. Wow. Um, and, and it was really— To, I mean, to that,
1: this. So where do we, how do we get here?
2: After Let's every book, I just try to do you know, something, different. something totally different. This book, and I think I was radicalized by the experience of reporting The True American Mm -hmm. in a certain... You know, I I think every book leaves a hangover that you pick up in the next one. The hangover from that one was, I spent a lot of time in these, like, exurbs of Texas around Dallas, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours out of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And it's basically these areas that, you know, in many cases have been essentially obliterated. I mean, there's still people there and there's still things there, but meth... Opioids, just the lack of jobs, you know, the total collapse Absolutely. of masculinity in those places and the fact that men are either kind of these hyper It's a lost group of people. It, totally lost. It's
1: a, lo- a smaller—to me, I've always thought there's a group at the top that loves the future and are leaning into it. Some of them are very wealthy. Very obscenely wealthy. Then there's a bottom group that are lost and they're mired in opiates and bad eating and uh, anger and all ki- and racism and all kinds of things. And then there's a group in the middle that some of whom are slipping down into that, and 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 others understand they need to lean into the future, but they're terrified of it. You know what I mean? Like, but totally. that, but it's really a development which has fueled a lot of what's going on.
2: And I, I remember once reading something actually when I was in India about how one way to define. The health of a society is—is is its middle class a poorer version of the rich or a slightly richer version of the poor?
1: Right. That's in a terms great way of to put it. Their
2: culture, they share right. the quality of their institutions, their church going, just various indicators. Mm-hmm. And we are definitely shifting from a society where the middle class was a kind of poorer version, of the it. rich with less money, to the poor with a little more money. Right. Um, because there just is so this not uh, you have this
1: overhang. And so, what was your point in trying to do this book? What so.
2: While I was radicalized by seeing all these places that were just, you know, the American dream had just deserted those places a long time ago, I, at the same time, was invited into a benevolent secret society called the Aspen Institute, mm-hmm. and there was this Henry thing called the Henry Crown Fellowship of the Aspen there Institute. Is. and It's not secret, but go ahead. It's like an open secret society. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I've heard of it, so it's not
2: that secret. <laughs> that, that proves nothing. Yeah, well, I <laughs> um, we don't really care for that stuff. <laughs> and, I mean, here was this group of people. The whole purpose of it was to bring together young leaders with mm-hmm. an idea to making them solve some of the most urgent problems of our time, the world's most right. intractable problems. Right. And at first you thought, great, I mean, wow, we, uh, here I am seeing some of these very big problems and, and, and here's this group of people doing that. And we'd meet, it was mostly business people, that was the idea. And I was kind of led in along with a couple other people. And it seemed great, we bonded. You know, you put a bunch of people together yeah. in a seminar yeah, been, room. Yeah, yeah, sure, why not? things are good. And... As I kind of got deeper into that world, I went to the Aspen Ideas Festival and this and that, and you start to see things are sponsored by Monsanto and Pepsi yep. when you're trying to make the world a better place. And the Koch brothers sponsor the building where you're yeah, discussing yeah. the deepening of democracy, and and uh, you know Goldman Sachs sponsors the summer reunion about you know reducing inequality and fighting for justice. And you start to wonder like, what am I really participating in here? Am I am I trying to break down? These problems are actually part of how we're shoring up these problems. Mm-hmm. And I, am I being used by this whole you thing? You
1: are, but go ahead.
2: Yeah. Well, hence the book. Mm-hmm. And so I was in that fellowship for a couple so years. So you're
1: in a Bite the Hand That Feeds You movie. Yeah,
2: sure. And I, I, they asked me to give a talk there, actually. They asked me to give a talk about the hate crime book. Mm-hmm. And I said yes. And then I emailed them and I said, well, it's going to be a slightly different talk than that. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's fine. Well, then I, you know, interpreted slightly in my own way. <laughs> um, so I included one paragraph about the hate crime thing, and then I, I, I decided to speak from the heart to a room full of millionaires and billionaires and trustees of this institute and my fellow fellows and a lot of you know people at every major company that in America, Facebook and Google and Goldman and whatever, all in that room. And I just said, look, rich people in our time all think that they're changing the world. They're making it a better place. They're they're trying to do good. And I think we need to confront the fact that we in this room may literally be the problem. Right. And we talk about doing a little more good, but we never talk about doing less harm. We talk about creating little programs for people. We don't talk about just paying people more. We talk about, you know, women leaning in, but we, don't, we lobby against, we meaning these people's companies, lobby against maternity leave in Congress. You know, so there's a lot of generosity then talk of generosity that happens Mm -hmm. with rich people these days in this age of extreme inequality. But there's not a lot of talk of justice. And generosity and justice are actually not the same. That is a very good point. And, well, you can imagine what happens when you— All right.
1: I want to hear about specific problems and the next specific instances of that in the book. I love that you've done this book. You have no idea. I'd like to have more people on this side of the— River, as they say. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back in a minute with Anand Girardardas. He's the author of a new book called Winners Take All, and they do the elite charade
0: of changing the world. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. An influential poll from The New York Times and Siena College last month showed that 23% of registered Black voters said if the election was held today, they'd vote for Donald Trump. Now, this is a big deal. Black voters historically vote Democrat, overwhelmingly. On Sunday, I sat down at South by Southwest with Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne commands one of the largest young black audiences in the country as co-host of The Breakfast Club. And he's become known for his blunt and provocative interviews of politicians and his critiques of Joe Biden and the Democrats. I'm the type of person, I I feel like as, as a black person... I don't see how we're beholden to either one of these parties. I don't understand these black conservative crazies, and I don't understand these black liberal crazies either. I think as a black person, you shouldn't be beholden to any political party in this country because we haven't really seen. Um, I mean, I, Democrats have done more, but we haven't really seen anybody systemically help us get out of the situation that we're in. Because I think that's something that people never truly address. Charlemagne the God on Today Explained every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're here with Anand Gir Dardas. He's the author of a new book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Let's think about specific things. You talked about how you got to this idea. You had written about a range of different things, but when you're here at the, this Aspen Institute, which I can just, my skin crawls when I think about that room. I, I know, exa- I've been in that room. You wanted The to, room where it doesn't happen. Where it doesn't happen, and where they also think that they do. When I first came to Silicon Valley, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal saying, Things I can't stand the tech people saying to me and changing the world was at the very top of the list. We're here to change the world. I'm like, no, you're here to make money. You're here to make a product. You're here to, like, you never would see a cigarette manufacturer, or not cigarette manufacturer. uh, just any, I'm going make peanut butter. We're here to change the world through Correct. peanut butter. Or Wall Street people do it. It was such an arrogant way of looking at, basically it was just capitalism as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So I made, I did a funny thing. Can, can I say
2: just a note on that? Mm. But this culture has spread so much though mm-hmm. that sometimes the direction is reversed. I, I have some friends who have a company that makes replacement shoelaces. These little plastic yeah. shoelaces called Hickeys. Great mm-hmm. little product. Mm-hmm. They tell a story. Every time they talk to the press and are trying to like pitch a story, the press will ask them. So, how are you changing the world? How are you making a difference? And they will say, "No, no, no. We're just a sh- we're just like a shoelace company. It's just right. a shoelace. It's just like literally just so shoelaces." It and it's actually the media that now yeah. expects a yeah. startup. Yeah. To, to, to have a story about civilizational uplift. Yeah,
1: I really just don't want them to hurt it. That's my I, like how are Like that's my only interest is stop hurting it. Or yeah. if you're hurting it, stop and fix it.
2: Um, I think it's no accident that. The company perhaps most associated with the narrative of changing the world in our time actually ended up being the first company in American history to compromise an American election. And that would be Facebook.
1: Yes, and we'll be talking about that. So talk about some of the, the concepts you have in, in, in Winners Take All. It is a charade. It is a charade. They do want to talk about it, and they go to Davos or whoever the heck they want to go to to do this. So talk about what that means. What? Give me some good examples of, like, taking all. Because they do. They suck at—one of the things I, that drives me crazy is—I've done lots of interviews with various people, but when they they do interviews with me, and they're like, well, we wanted to fix this, and we're really sorry, and, you know, it's hard to have this—they It's they don't want to take the power—they don't want to— they pretend they don't have the power they have almost freak almost Correct. continually.
2: I have a whole chapter about that called Rebel Kings and Worrisome Berets.
1: Yeah. And I was like, you took the money, you took you ruined the media business, you didn't mind doing any of that. And now you don't wanna like take responsibility for Correct. it. Correct. So but let's talk let's, about let's these. start.
2: With, let's start with that one. Okay. So I have a chapter in the book called You know, so the whole book is, although it's making the argument mm-hmm. that I'm making to you, it actually consists of stories of people in this world. Grappling with these dilemmas right. and trying to figure oh, out grapple. how to Grapple's how to do how to do right while also frankly clinging right. to their to their privileges. So one of the chapters is about summit the summit at sea cruise ship. Oh god. Okay. Yeah. Three thousand uh, tech entrepreneurs, one Norwegian cruise ship, mm-hmm. and and just so much world changing possibility. <laughs> um, and so you know r- right before the world right before we, we board the ship. There's this email that some people get that say, you know, in, in a few days something transformational is going to be born from the sky and the moon, and it might just change history. We may not see the full effect now, but that's the case with any great shift, any seismic shift amongst the plates of planet Earth. Mm-hmm. That's like the welcome email. Yeah, I know. So we get on the ship, and I and I tell the story of these people in Shervin Peshever, this VC, you know, shady guy, whatever. Sh-
1: I know Shervin. Yeah.
2: What do you think of Shervin?
1: I'm not going into it but go ahead yeah
2: on. so he you know he's he, a so complex he, character yeah he, he's yeah he is giving this talk and I kind of describe his talk and but the the thing that really struck me on the ship about these world changers is I actually started to feel for and started to understand why they deny their power which I think is such a crucial issue absolutely
1: no, they push away power and
2: you can't yes. they have this you know I think John F Kennedy used this idea of or it was an Arthur Schlesinger book about the Kennedys, uh, this idea of folk memory. Mm-hmm. That we often have these like folk memories that are not our own memories, but are right. just kind of passed down. There's a folk memory in tech of being a rebel, mm-hmm. of being a hacker, of being a tinkerer on the outside. Right, right? And, and
1: sort of the apple, they remember they had the pirate flag in front of all them. All of that. Yeah.
2: And I think if you're like 30 and working in tech, that just was never the actual never. story of your life. No. But there are some people who did live that story.
1: Giant cosseted babies. Right. But go ahead. <laughs>
2: But I think if you were in that early group mm-hmm. and you were up against, I don't know, Walmart or IBM or GE or Kodak, whatever, moment, yeah. right? Like you could feel like you were these little rebels up against the man. I think the problem is they've clung to that folk memory mm-hmm. even as they won. And so the analogy I use is you know, you see like on the news, these war torn countries where you have like a rebel army that is advancing on the capital, mm-hmm. right? And you got these rebel commanders in their berets sitting in the back of pickup trucks. They got one gun holding another gun, you know. Sometimes the rebels win. And sometimes the rebels actually make it to the palace. They become the new king. They become the president. The old guy is taken off in a helicopter to some exile country. And it's always a bad sign if the rebel, when they ascend to the palace... Keeps their beret on.
1: Yes, because they—they you're talking about Fidel Castro, Ish
2: Castro, Mugabe, Saddam. Yeah. they all kept the beret. Yeah. And what does it mean when you keep the beret? It means it's even a though you've arrived
1: of yourself,
2: right? But you've arrived. Right. You now actually are power. You're not the rebel. Right. You're the establishment now. Yeah. And you haven't processed your arrival of who you are. You haven't accepted it's like be, who you be, are. You
1: know, being constantly on a campaign rather than governing, or it's,
2: it's like Trump's rallies. Right.
1: Yeah. He just can't govern. He just wants to continue on the campaign that he already won. Someone wrote me a tweet the other day. He's like, you're part of the elite and you're running everything and we're going to take power from you. I'm like – I don't know last time you looked, but Congress and all of Congress and the presidency is run by y'all. And I don't have power. Like, I don't, my people don't have power for sure. And it was really interesting that they continued. I was like, look up and see that you have the power and you're the one doing the damage, not me. Yeah. And it was really interesting. But w- that is a thing. And so in, in tech, it's the look, at least if we're talking about tech particularly. And I think you're right. They, hook, they cling on to that concept of themselves. It's the juvenile clothes, it's the everything. It's where simple, uh, even as they have it's the hard plans. to hear Zuck
2: call Facebook a Company. He always calls it a community.
1: Yeah, he does that.
2: You know, like it, like they're like I a, call it like a, a Drums. Yeah, that's starting to get closer to the reality. Oh, it is closer to the reality. And it's not just a verbal tick or a clothing thing. Like. They understand completely what they are doing by not being seen as power, they get to behave like babies. Well,
1: here's what's interesting is that when you say that you have to call it a community, it means he's just one of the members. That's why he's doing it. And I'm always like, you're running, like one of the things they were talking about is like, well, he's not responsible. I'm like, he has full, he controls the shares. He's the CEO and he has 64 billion. I'm going with him who has the power. Like, I don't know. He's not, it's not a community. It's a community run by one community of one
2: I mean, you and I both know this forget what they say publicly you and mm-hmm. I both speak to people privately in that company mm-hmm. they will tell you that yeah they could make less money and have way more people policing abuse yeah way more people 100%. doing security right. it would just cost something I mean right. part of the whole fantasy that I'm trying to dismantle in this book yeah. is it's a lot of social problems just involve the winners taking a little bit right.
1: less. right exactly and
2: because right. that has been ruled out right We have a lot of problems. So the, the so the first one is the
1: idea that they are still the rebels. That they are still the aggrieved. That they are still which you this guy thought that the same thing that brown people were taking away his rights. Even though it's not untrue. So that they're still the rebels.
2: All right. But I think the overall government. So I I describe in the book a place called Market World. Mm -hmm. One word, capital M, capital W, and Market World is a kind of overlapping complex of people and institutions that are trying to do well by doing good, Yeah, that are trying to, you know, make a killing and make a difference, that are trying to have a win-win right. with everything. And so that is people at Goldman Sachs trying to do green bonds to mm-hmm. change the world while also maybe pushing Exxon stock. That is, you know, the Silicon Valley folks we talked about. That is big philanthropy that is trying to take money that was made hurting people and then turn it around to help. Mm-hmm. Often those same people. The Carnegie effect. The Carnegie effect. I mean, you have the number of banks you have right now that are, you know, 500 million to revitalize America's <laughs> urban areas. Like, you literally were just fined 13, 16 billion dollars uh-huh. for causing millions of foreclosures in this country. Mm-hmm because you like, willfully, fraudulently caused a financial crisis mm-hmm. that just that killed, that literally killed people mm-hmm. around the world from lost jobs and lost healthcare and any number of other things. And, and oh, wow, you're doing a $500 million mm-hmm. of revitalization, but you also got $10 billion you know, from right. the, the tax cuts. And, like, and, and you have this whole dynamic where the winners of our age deeply believe that they can help people, they can fight for others. But only on their terms. Right. They are willing to fight for equality and justice in any way they can, except by stepping off of people's backs. Right. They're not willing to have an education system that funds public schools equally and adequately mm-hmm. because that would cost rich people a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They're not willing, they're willing to tell women to lean in, because that's actually free. You can just actually just yeah. say, see, I just did it. <laughs> I just did it. I just literally just did, I just said lean in, and that, yeah. that's a social policy. <laughs> you know, actual social policy that would actually empower women based on what, like, 15 maternity other countries, leave. maternity leave, child care tax credits, mm-hmm. like, laws to prevent, you know, everybody from being groped in the office every mm-hmm. day, et cetera. I mean, these are all, it, these are not mysteries. Mm-hmm. This is not like going to space, like, we so, know. So,
1: So one is b- thinking, it, having lack of self-awareness of exactly who you are, which is the bad person, yes. like, or the dangerous person. The other the is the
2: insistence on the win-win. Mm-hmm. That That the only kind of change social change that's acceptable is the kind of social change that also benefits the powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and Give me an example a, of that. The lean-in thing is a great example of that, where you say, you know, the best way to empower women is telling them to lean in, not doing the kind of social policy that's going to, like, cost my company a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Right. Why would I want to do that? That's that's too expensive. You know, or on this public schools thing, you know, let's let's do a charter school here. And every, every rich person wants to do a charter school. How many of them want to fight for, Why do like, why do we have, why do we fund public schools? according to the home value of people's parents' home. Like, why do we do that? That's that's what we do in this country. It's, right. it's, a, it's barbarism. Right. Right. Can you explain to a six-year-old why their quality of their education correlates on the, on the with like, how nice their family's home is? Mm-hmm. It's an insane idea, mm-hmm. right? Um, but people don't fight on that issue because what would happen? The homes in Marin and Greenwich and Westchester would all— the home values would go down mm-hmm. if they didn't get to have these much better public schools than everybody else. Right, exactly. So we don't do that kind of change, you know. And then you also have, and this is a, a kind of third issue, you have this newly ascendant idea over the last many years that you kind of need a McKinsey-Goldman Sachs mind to fight poverty.
1: Right, the business people will take care of it, right?
2: Because because they, you know, it's carrots, spreadsheets, I mean, spreadsheets. <laughs> Come on! I mean, it's pow- PowerPoint. You know, it's interesting. You just
1: mentioning it. Uh, I remember one of the better speeches by Barack Obama. Finally, was when he said, "Tech people think there's always a tech solution to things, and maybe government doesn't have it. There's no tech solution to poverty, or there's no
2: tech solution. Correct. You and know? I think but he said something that they don't lend themselves th- to this. Like, and, and that, like, and I think he said this line that in that same speech. Like, the stuff you guys do is easy. Mm-hmm. That's why you're fast and efficient at it. Right. Governing 325 million people is hard and it's not supposed to be fast.
1: Right. It's not supposed to make money. It,
2: it, it, it's I just about.
1: Said, I was arguing with someone recently about the government costs a lot. I said, it's not supposed to make money. It's, it's really not. It's not a profit institute. Like, it's supposed to cost money and if we're going to do it. And obviously, inefficient is, is one thing. But it was sort of an, an, a mentality that we have that if it's not... If it doesn't make money, like it's uh, that concept. So go ahead. So, so
2: so, so you have this idea yeah. that the people, the architects of our mm-hmm. winners take all economy are the people best positioned Digital to redress side. the injustices of our winners take all economy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now foundations will bend over backwards to hire ex McKinsey, ex Goldman Sachs people mm-hmm. to run their like equality program, mm-hmm. right? And this is just about as disturbing an idea as the idea of hiring arsonists to be firefighters (laughs) because they, I guess, know a lot about fire. They
1: do. They do know a lot about fire.
2: And so you end up having, you know, I, I write about a guy in the book named Sean Hinton, who's a really thoughtful guy about this issue, worked at, um, at Goldman and McKinsey and then ended up at the Open Society's foundations working for George Soros. And he calls it the trying to solve the problems with the tools that caused it issue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And he and he's talking about himself. But on the other hand, he knows that he's a smart, capable guy and it's probably better that he's doing this than just right. staying in banking. But one of the things that happens is when the language of our social problems is reformatted for the operating system of business people's minds, mm-hmm. The nature of the problem has changed. Right. We stop actually talking about justice and rights and power. Right. We start talking about scale and efficiency and leveraging synergies, Mm -hmm. and those are not just different words. Right. That actually is a different diagnosis. Right. What rich people don't like to do when they solve problems is kind of talk about who did it. Mm -hmm. There's always this thing. I mean, at every event I do, it's always like, okay, great. I mean, yeah, yeah, but but what are the solutions? Let's just move forward. Let's move forward. No,
1: I just had this long argument. (laughs) on a podcast with Mark Zuckerberg about this, right? Yeah. I I, I kept saying, and how do you feel about what you did? Oh,
2: my, that feeling, that was painful. That was painful. You had to do it. How many times did I do it? Oh, my gosh. How many? I don't even know how many you must have edited out. No,
1: no, no, we didn't edit anything. It was four times I asked the same question. Oh, my gosh. He couldn't do do it. How do you feel about the deaths in Myanmar and India based on your creation? What we really want to do is fix the problem. We really want to get to solutions because I think getting to solutions is important. I was like, yeah, I, I got that. But what do you think you, what was your or what did you do wrong and how do you feel about that how do you feel about people dying right dying and well you know solutions are what is important to us and I think whenever there's a problem there's a solution well you cause the problem so how do you feel about causing that problem and it went like that four it was four to five times and finally he said to me let me just say he goes well, what do you want me to say I said I want you to say I'm sorry and I cannot believe that what I made did this and I feel sick to my stomach I said that's you might start there like, not to give you any, like, cues about what it was, but it was, but what what I wanted, the point I wanted to make there is they can't, and Mark is a lovely person, let me just say, he can't get there, and they they cannot get to that idea that they are at fault or take responsibility and contemplate what went wrong. They don't want to do that. They don't want, that part they don't want to do when it's important to the solution, as far as I'm concerned. So, go ahead.
2: But I, I think it's, when, when I was listening to that, my observation was and, and I had the same feeling watching that Elon Musk, um, you the know, spliff one. one. <laughs> that, you know, I love to live in a world where there are all kinds of different people. But I think we have to, just watching these guys, we have to acknowledge that they they tend to be a very particular kind of person, mm-hmm. a particular kind of man. And they're often these kind of boy men who are not particularly developed in a lot of ways. Yeah. They're not cultivated.
1: Well, I said they don't have humanities courses. They right.
2: Don't. It's, 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 that it's interesting that many around. of them... Yeah, No, it, I
1: said he should have taken more. He missed right, the humanities, Ethics. Right. ethics. Well, and, it's interesting
2: that they all drop out, right? Mm-hmm. And that's fine to have such people who kind of are not able to relate to other human beings and not able to connect to their emotions. I mean, it's great to have them in the world, but to have so many of them essentially now in charge of what have become basically the locomotives of human history now, these various platforms, is really, really problematic. For To have this, the kind of man you just described in that anecdote, essentially deciding what kind of media we have, mm-hmm. deciding how secure our elections are, deciding like what abuse women have to encounter online mm-hmm. or don't, for that man who's maybe mm-hmm. less feeling a human being than many people you've met in your life, um, it feels really bothersome to me. All
1: right, Anand, we're going to get talk a bit about where we go from here and when they become self-aware, which I think is never. We're here talking with the author <laughs> of a new book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. We're here with Anand Girdardas. He's the author of a new book called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It's also a charade. Which one do you like? Do you like charade or charade? I th-
2: you know, I, I think, um, I think mm-hmm. charade is Same. classier, but classier. charade is more grounded. Charade. It depends whether you're a winner or not. So
1: what do to change this? Give me a few more things they do. So they always are the solutions based rather than the problems based. And when you bring up the problems, which I think is really interesting, they're always saying you're really negative. Correct. That always happens. Uh, to me. So,
2: I, so I make the following analogy yeah. to people, which is some kinds of problems are like engines that, are, that need to be tweaked. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are many problems that, that are analogous to that. You turn this dial, you turn this, you tighten that, and you fix the engine. Other types of problems are like crime scenes. Okay, a crime scene is a very different kind of problem than an engine that's not working. Okay, I want to hear this. You song. don't show up at a crime scene mm-hmm. and say, you know what, let's just move forward. <laughs> What's done is done. Let's, <laughs> let's just, you know, let's just, sol- let's just solve this. Yeah. Right? That's a preposterous response to a crime scene, <laughs> right? In a crime scene, it's entirely, for the larger sake of preventing it, for various forward-leaning goals, you have to first look backwards. Who did this? How did this happen? Where is the person who did this? How do we help the person to whom this has been done? Well, part of my argument is, if you look at some problems we have in our society, you know, if you say we have a public school system where the teachers, if they were, you know, matched better with the neediest students, you'd have better outcomes. Yeah, that's like an engine problem. Great. Awesome. Let's, you can have an algorithm, do that. Awesome. Great. Very happy. Win-win. But a lot of social problems are more like a crime scene. What men have done to women over right. hundreds of years is more analogous to a crime scene than an engine that's out of whack. What white people have done to black people in this country is more analogous to a crime scene than, than to an engine. Um, frankly, the American economy that has cornered, that has allowed the very few to corner almost all the benefits of the future for the last 30 or 40 years for itself that's more like a crime scene than an engine that's out of whack. So if you are addressing yourself to the problem of equality of women or rights for African-Americans or how do you actually build an economy that's more inclusive, just getting in a solving mood is a kind of posture that favors power. Of course it does. It has a well-known Power bias. Yes, right. And actually being interested in excavating, having a curiosity about how did you know this happen?
1: I, I, like in tech, at least, it's because they don't want to say, well, the failure was a failure, now we'll move on. Like the moving on thing is always, let's move on. One of the things that I've been impressing them about is, well, how... Why did you make it this way? I want to know why you made it this way and how we can stop, or maybe you need to remake it that way. I just had a really interesting podcast with Nicole Wong, who was one of the lawyers involved, and she finally said, here's what we did, and here's why I was wrong, and here's what they need to do, and here's how we have to create the pillars in all new ways. And it was the first, like, I was like, thank you. Thank you for that explanation, that cogent explanation, because when you start to sort of press them on how it got that way, that's where it gets super messy.
2: There's a lot of passive voice
1: mm-hmm.
2: in Silicon Mistakes Valley. Mistakes were made. Our platform was hacked or whatever. Right. You know, the, no, it wasn't hacked. It was built uh, that right, way. Right, right. But, but, the, but it's, it's not that even it was built that way. Someone built it that way. Right. And you have to bet there were meetings at Facebook
0: mm-hmm.
2: where there was someone in the room who said, you know what? I think we should actually have 50,000 more security people. This election is way too... Mm-hmm. We're we're seeing this stuff come in. It's gonna look. It'll cost a billion dollars, but like we have to do it, right? And someone said that at some meeting. No I did. presume.
1: No one said that at that meeting. That's the they're so co- No, I don't. I don't think they even thought of it. You don't. You
2: don't think there's, like a dissident along the way?
1: No, there's no dissidents there. They're compromising and cohesive in a way that's disturbing. I ask right. that a lot. I actually asked Elliot Schraig, who who is the head of uh, policy at a. At event, I raised my hand. He's like, "Oh no!" And I go, "Yeah, oh no, it's right." Why aren't there any irritants in the room at Facebook? Why didn't anybody say this was a problem? What's the, like you always brag about your cohesion. I don't want your cohesion. I want to know who irritated, who was the irritant, <laughs> or who said no, and who said, I, right. I, "I don't think that person existed at these places," because it is a lot about going along. Even mm. though they act like rebels, they do. They tend to fall in line with each other in a way that's, or, or, or fall into violent agreement about things.
2: And I think that, that's the kind of insight that you get to when you actually are willing to ask backward-looking questions, when you're actually willing to sit with a problem and not just...
1: Well, it goes against the positivity that, that the elites Correct. like, the, posi- the, uh, the relentless positivity. And one of the things, I think I asked Sheryl Sandberg on stage, who got fired for this? She couldn't answer? Well, we don't look at it that way. I'm like, why? People get fired for all kinds of things when they fuck up, and it seems like this is a fuck up. looks like a fuck up to me, and wouldn't answer, couldn't answer, not wouldn't, couldn't, They don't think like that, which was really interesting. Well, that's not how we want to – like, let's just move forward with this. And it was really interesting. And so who's – to me, the concept of the bill always comes due never occurs to people. Correct.
2: I mean, I think part of what I wanted to try to investigate, and we say moving forward
1: in our own way. How do we change this?
2: I think a lot of this is actually held together by a bullshit culture and a set of bullshit ideas – that we all sort of passively believe, that some of them really believe. All right, what are the bullshittiest? In Europe, no one thinks Mark Zuckerberg's changing the world. Yeah, they don't. (laughs) Right? And I don't think it's an accident that he gets multi, you know, that they, the tech people get like multi-billion dollar fines Mm -hmm. in Europe because... They're just seen as companies. They're seen like the same way Heinz Ketchup is a company. Mm -hmm. And that's a healthy way to look at them. They're not awful people who should be banned. They're just normal companies. But our culture makes us look at them as changing the world. that has
1: changed, though, here, too, I think.
2: You know, then there's the – I think it's starting to change here in a way that's really great. You know, then with innovation, everything's innovation, innovation, innovation. Government needs to innovate more. I mean, we, everybody wants to chase this whole innovation thing. You Government know, does need to innovate more, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> but, like, I,
2: I'm much more interested in the, in the word progress. The yes. reality is we've had a tremendous amount of innovation over the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Half of Americans, the bottom half, 117 million Americans, literally got no more money in their paycheck as a result of 40 years of innovation. We don't have an innovation no, it, shortage. It, we it have a progress shortage. The top. Yes. Right. And and so actually figuring out not how do you get more and more innovation? We're good on innovation. We're very bad at converting innovation into progress. That's an important problem that people should be working on. Thinking about how do you as a winner not insist on win-wins? How do you actually get out of the way of the public trying to solve its problems in ways that may hurt you. Mm-hmm. And the Bezos thing is interesting because... He just gave. Explain. He just, he, gave. He just announced a long-awaited announcement about what he's going to do philanthropically. The world's richest man hasn't really been in this game in a big way. And this is kind of, in some ways, I think the significance is, this is the first mega giver to kind of decide his plans after the tech backlash has has kind of it's called The arrived. tech backlash, sorry, yeah. I forgot that hashtag. And after the reckoning in philanthropy that my book is kind of a small part of. is a whole larger reckoning that has been happening after that. And so he announced he's going to spend $2 billion on homelessness and early education. He's going to build a network of Montessori schools, full scholarship schools, and he's going to give money to organizations that are doing a good job fighting homelessness. Now, both good causes. I think the challenge is this is a man who, when he was thinking about building Amazon, was a total daredevil and irreverent and bold and brash and didn't care what investors or anybody else thought and built something transformative. And my hope for him, since he's new to this game, would be that he would be as transformative in thinking about giving. And what that would mean is a few things. One, that instead of just creating a little project here and there, giving these things, he would actually first start by looking at himself. How am I? These people love to ask what they can do. They never ask what they have done. Right? That's a really good way to put it. How am I involved in this problem? How have my work practices been involved in this? How, have I, how am I the product of a system of taxation and labor and all these other things that allowed me to make this fortune? And yes, fine, what's done is done. I'm, I'm here now. I want to give in that forward-looking way. Um, but if I can give in ways that actually, frankly, mitigated some of those systemic issues if I could give in a way that actually helped us figure out how we tax companies more effectively, if I could give in ways that actually strengthened collective bargaining and unions. I mean, imagine if he gave a billion dollars to an organization like the Workers Lab in Oakland that is actually trying to figure out what's the future of collective bargaining, what's the future Mm -hmm. of unions, and how do you give workers more power? That is different for me. Than just giving money to right. a homeless organization. That's sure, right? It's not just treating symptoms. Mm-hmm. You'd be pushing towards solving a problem at the root. A great thing to give for everybody. To.
1: Would they take his money?
2: I don't know. It's a good question. I don't think they take his money. That's a good question. Um, they should
1: take his money. And
2: then no strings attached, right? Right. You're not. You're not on the board. Yep. You're not leading their there work. There you go. Good luck. It's not called the uh, you know the Bezos Workers Lab. It's just supporting organizations that are doing the work of frankly. Challenging the very system atop which you stand. Now that is a hard thing I'm asking people. But I'm a an idealistic person, and I think
1: is anybody doing that from your perspective?
2: I, you know, I think probably the best example. You know, there are folks, there are folks who give to ProPublica, for example. David Callahan writes a lot about philanthropy. Wrote a a, a good and, and somewhat critical review of my book the other day, and he he was talking about, you know, the people who give to ProPublica, people who give to Mother Jones. I mean, those are those are people who are funding like, investigative work that is, like, not very friendly to rich people. So that's an example of, of right. doing that. I mean, in some ways, George Soros has been interesting. He You know, he gives to—he um, does not do this win-win giving, necessarily. He gives to a lot of social justice organizations that are thorns in the side of Soros. rich people and that investigate, investigate mm-hmm. the hell out of his friends, probably. But I think there's some more unsung people. There are people I—some philanthropists in, in California who— are spending their money trying to make our census count more accurate, mm-hmm. right? This is the kind of thing, it's not sexy, it's not cool, it's not like Zuckerberg making some announcement that he's going to end all the diseases. But the reason I like the census thing is what, the, what, what they're doing, they're using private money to count people and find where pe- people sometimes live on top of a building or in an alley. The government doesn't have that listed as an address, mm-hmm. right? What the government allows you to do is to submit, private people can submit addresses like on top of a roof or in an alley that they may not know about, and the government will then go check those places if they check out. And so some of these philanthropists in California are privately financing this kind of walk around of various places. In
1: order to do better senses.
2: Now, that's an amazing example of it's a private gift, it's private philanthropy, but what is it feeding into? A better public sphere. It's feeding into government working better, counting more people, being able to give resources to more people. Mm-hmm. And if that kind of effort succeeds, it actually comes at the expense of the winners yes. because it means and also
1: it doesn't necessarily involve them. Like they no. just, just give us. Not one point it. I was talking to someone who's very wealthy, and they're like, oh, "I want to do this." And I was like, "Just give the fucking money and shut up." Like, just give your money. Like, stop. Like, they all do want to involve themselves and talk about it incessantly, and that's.
2: One of the people Just, I talk about in the book is Emmett Carson, who is now out as the Silicon Valley Community Foundation guy. Yeah. And he said something very interesting. You know, When he was at other foundations, he always talked about social justice and inequality, and those were his buzzwords. He like, Get gets out to the valley. It's made very clear to him very quickly. I mean, he's a counselor to Zuck and all these others. It's made very clear to him very quickly you drop this language. Social justice doesn't work. Inequality doesn't You've got to stop talking like this. Talk about opportunity. And, and I said, you know, what did you kind of understand by having to kind of cater and dance around these people's needs in the Valley? And what he basically explained to me was they really want to help people as long as, as you say, they're driving the ship. The help is voluntary. It's not the government compelling them to give money for programs the government decides about. It's them deciding where their mm-hmm. money goes. They like to feel useful. They like to feel involved. Yeah. Which basically is not an, art.
1: And not insulted.
2: But can I tell you what those are the values of? Those are the values of a feudal culture. Yep. This is feudal giving, right? I mean, to go back to where we started, you know, when I used to travel to India as a child, the thing that strikes you is all these affluent families, they all have servants. Right. And they'll all tell you, oh, our servant is just like family to us. Mm-hmm. The problem is the servant sleeps like on the floor. And they're the servant. And they're the servant. They sleep on the floor. There's no restrictions on their hours. They're not subject to any labor laws. Their passport is usually kept in a lock and key somewhere, which is the definition of human trafficking. Uh, they're given just you know, a plate of rice every day. And there's this, you know, when their roof caves in in, in the state of, you know, Bihar or Madhya Pradesh you'll send $300 or $400 for them to repair their roof, and it's very generous. There's a lot of generosity
0: mm-hmm. in that
2: world. It's not a lot of justice. And what no one thinks in that world to do is to say, gosh, we shouldn't be living in this right. equation that we're living right. in. Yeah. And that's the, that actually is the same thing that many of the winners in America are get that kind of yeah. relationship where they're happy to throw down scraps to the powerless, mm-hmm. but they don't want to live in a world in which they're, they're not powerless anymore.
1: Right. Absolutely, that's a very good way to end. So, if you had to know where it's going, is this just going to continue, or has there been a reckoning?
2: I think. Allow me to make the most enthusiastic endorsement of Donald Trump that I can make, which oh, is no. okay. which is which is this. I think Donald Trump rose to power because so many people felt that elites agree don't care about them. You know, we're talking out of two sides of their mouth. I think he then became the most fake-change president of all the, you know, despite all the fake change that kind of preceded him. But I actually have hope that he is so bankrupt, he is so barren of any kind of concern for people, and he is so kind of animated by this fake billionaire savior impulse that I actually have hope that he will discredit the idea of the billionaire savior once and for all.
1: Yeah,
2: And that, you know, are kind of Bloomberg and Oprah fantasies. Like, I, I just hope that'll all pass when he passes. And that he's the kind of president in American history who sometimes becomes the spark for a real shift. And I could see, and my hopeful scenario would be, I could see a world in which Donald Trump becomes a spark of a new age of reform in American life, the way we had 100 years ago, right. where we stopped expecting Rockefellers and Carnegie's to make it rain, and we actually built... An FDA, and an interstate highway system, and the New right. Deal, and
1: that's a really rural electrification.
2: Point. You know, a slightly more generous way to think about where we are in America is that we're in an area, a time of mismatch, private innovation and capacity to do stuff has just far outstripped our capacity to make sense of it and order it. We, you know, we have, we have Uber drivers, but we just have no idea what that labor market is and how to protect people from it. We have Airbnb. We just don't know, like safety in the, in a world. Like we just, we've invented a lot of things that we haven't brought order to, which is exactly where we were a hundred years ago. Mm and. I think we just needed an age of great public energy, young people going into public service instead of to Goldman Sachs and McKinsey, and a great wave of public building and public rebuilding. And who better than Donald Trump to remind us the billionaires won't save us.
1: That's a perfect thing, to And Arnan, this has been great. He's the author of a new book called Winners Take All the Elite Charade of Changing the World. And I got to tell you, it's so nice to hear from you. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm by myself saying, You need to pay for this. You broke this. You, you broke it. You pay. You buy it, <laughs> thing. But I appreciate it. Thank and you so I much. I think for everybody should me. read it. It's really important to start thinking about this, especially you Silicon Valley jackasses. Come on. We love you, but not that much. Thanks for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you didn't like the interview, I don't really care or just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks to listening to our episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.